Good morning, everybody. Can I get some buzz out of some of you this morning? I have a friend that is my nickname. He calls me Buzz all the time because I do like uh, a lot of buzz. I was uh, away last week on vacation, like Jana, and uh, I missed you all too, but now I'm back and I really miss the beach, like a lot. So nothing personal, but uh, <laughs> like the beach too. Hey, um, first of all, what a great staff we have here that I can go away, and uh, there are so many people to fill in. Um, Isaac preached once already this summer. Mike preached, so when you see them, encourage the incredible staff. Isaac is on vacation today, and so Mike and Annie were leading. It's just uh, God has, has so blessed us. This morning, I'm going to um, be teaching on what I think might be the most profound but God story in the Bible, and um, I think if you embrace it, it has the potential to reframe your life. So before we get started, I just want to ask you to pray with me um, so that our hearts are open to hearing it. I need my heart to be reopened to hearing it. So, Father, um, the truth of this story is, is beyond measure, and I, I think we could just sit around for days and delve into it. I pray, Lord, through the power of, of your Holy Spirit, which is alive and well in every believer in the room, that you would open our our ears to hear and eyes to see um, the truth of this story. For those that, that don't know you personally this morning, Lord God, I pray that, that in understanding this and hearing this, they would be drawn to you like never before. And so speak to us, Jesus, through the power of your word. We ask it in the great name of Jesus. Amen. This is one of, if not the biggest or most famous but God stories in the scripture. And, and as I said, I think it has the promise, if, if you and I could just remember this, you know, I joke a lot about crocheting these things on pillows. This would be one to crochet on a pillow. It really, really can do a lot of things. The first thing is, if you understand it fully, it can reframe your past your hurts and your discouragements and your disappointments, the things that you've done and screwed up, the things that people have done to you and, 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 and hurt you. It could make sense of your present circumstances that seem so unclear maybe as they do right now. And I, I think if you really understand it, it, it can give you incredible hope for your future despite whatever challenges you find yourself in, 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 in the middle of. It's that profound. It's that useful. But in order to fully embrace the story, you've got to really understand it. And so I want to set it up for you. Now, I'm telling you, I have used this line, this truth, to, to get me and others through some of the darkest days in my life. Um, you heard this morning of the, the Timmerman Verdugo golf classic. I remember when Don's son, um, Jack, passed away in a car accident a few years ago. Um, I was at his home, and we went into Jack's bedroom, and he was showing me around some stuff in the room. And we knelt down next to Jack's bed, and we were praying together. And I remember saying this line to Don, saying, but God, but God. And, and Don and Jackie and his family have embraced this story. I hope you will too. In your email, here's what I wrote to you. I said, this Sunday, it's not about bad things happening to good people. All of us have faced that truth. It's part of our human story. This Sunday, it's about bad people doing evil things to innocent people. Now, I hope that's not your story, but it might be. And I think when you see things like that happen, maybe if it's not happened to you, but you've seen it happen, the questions are natural. Where is God when that happened? Why didn't he protect him or her or me? Why did he let it happen? And, and where do I go from here 
now that that's been inflicted on me. I, I didn't deserve it. Let me show you what the scriptures would indicate. The most famous of book lines is delivered from a man named Joseph. And it's in the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis, this, this book of origins. Joseph was a direct descendant of Abraham. We talk about Abraham a lot. God made this a promise to Abraham that he would bless him and his family, and then they would be a blessing to the whole earth. Jesus would eventually come from the line of Abraham. And so there was Abraham, and then there was his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and Jacob is the father of Joseph. Now, Genesis is a very important book in the Bible. It really sets up the entirety of the, the Scripture. And Joseph, believe it or not, is, in terms of space, the preeminent character in, in, in Genesis. About a quarter of the book is the story of Joseph. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, he does what many characters in the scripture do. Jacob actually does what many of us do. Jacob echoes a sin pattern down to his son Joseph. I have echoed sin patterns down to my sons and my daughters. You and I have had them echoed upon us. This is what is behind the story. It's going on. Jacob, when he was growing up, he had experienced, it had been laid on him, his parents playing favorites between him and his brother. Well, now, Jacob is continuing on that pattern. He's doing the same thing. Although he has several sons, he loves his son Joseph the most, and it's not even close. In fact, not only is it not even close, it's not disguised. I mean, he's not trying to hide it. Here's how Moses, who scholars believe wrote the book of Genesis, tells this most famous story. Now, Israel, that was another name for Jacob, he loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. I love how Moses begins to write the story, right? The, the play on love, love, hate. And why did they hate him? Well, because his father loved him more, as noted by this ornate robe that he gave him. Now, as I understand it, this, this robe was more or less a status symbol for Joseph that he loved to flaunt before his brothers. It reflected to everybody that saw it that Joseph did not have to do manual labor, that's why he was wearing such a decorative and long-sleeved coat. It spoke of nobility and not hard work. Now, typically in a family, the oldest brother would get that coat, but not in this most dysfunctional family. Instead, Jacob chooses Joseph, one of the younger sons, and upends the, the whole apple cart. And of course, if you're Joseph and you ever meet like the spoiled kid in the family, right? If you're Joseph and you grow up that way, it went to his head. Literally, it went to his head. He began to have dreams about his greatness. Here's how Moses recorded it. He said, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, here it comes again, they hated him all the more. They hated him to begin with, and now they really hate him. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf froze up, stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Imagine your brother laying that one on you. Of course they hated him all the more for it, right? They hated him before the dream, and now he's going, listen, one day you guys are all going to be bowing down to me. Now, it might have been best had he kept the dream to himself, 
But since this family is apparently uh, one of those families that just says uh, what, whatever comes to mind, right? Moses says that his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Now, I'm not sure if you're tracking with what Moses is trying to get across, okay? But that's the third they hated him in just those couple of lines. Anybody get the sense of what's going here? They hate him. They feel about Joseph the way I feel about the New York Yankees. There is a passion and an anger and a just, you know. And, and No emails, please. Mets do have a better record, though. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> so that's what's going on here, right? Joseph's brothers hate him. And the truth is that while Joseph is probably a bit of a show-off, and, and, and he needs to acquire some better people skills, right? Their hatred is, for the most part, unmerited. Joseph hasn't done anything. His father has really done it. It's really driven out of their broken natures. They're just infuriated because they feel cheated. Their daddy likes, likes Joseph more than them. Well, fast forward in the story, right? One day, the older brothers are out in the fields tending to sheep, working hard, right? Where is Joseph? Joseph is home with dad, wearing his coat, because Joseph doesn't need to work in the fields because he's the appointed older brother, even though he's the younger brother, right? And, and his father, Jacob, calls him in and goes, I'm not sure where the boys are. Go out and check on them, right? I don't, maybe they're not doing anything. I don't know what's going on. Go out and make sure that those clowns are working. And so Joseph heads out, right? And as he gets close to them, they see him coming, and here comes the golden boy in his coat of many colors, and from a distance, and I'm guessing the coat gave him away, they can see him coming, and they decide before he even gets there that they're going to kill him. Imagine Thanksgiving with this family, right? You think your family is a mess. This is, you know, this, you know when this people, you hear people argue, we should return to biblical family values. Sometimes I'm always like, yeah, maybe, but, you know, you got to take, take that whole story into account. So when Joseph gets there, they cry out, here comes the dreamer, and, and, and they, they, they try to prove his dream wrong. And to do that, they strip him of his robe, and they throw him into a pit. And then Moses says they sat down to dinner together while their brother is in the bottom of this pit. And while he's in there, and I'm not sure how close by it was, maybe they overheard him, they're deciding what they're going to do. Are they going to kill him, or are they going to do something else, Right. They come to the conclusion that rather than kill him, they'll profit off of this instead. It won't give them any gain to kill him, so they're going to sell him into slavery, and that's what they do. And once they sell him into slavery, they, don't, they, they can't go home without their, their, their brother to Jacob because he, Jacob loved him. And so they take that beautiful coat, and they mess it up, and they dip it in some goat's blood and take it back to their dad and just say, hey, dad, I don't know, man, but this is what we found. This looks like a lot of, uh, could be Joseph's. What do you think, dad? And Jacob just falls for it and goes, my gosh, my son has been mauled and he's been eaten by animals. My favorite son, and he weeps and he wails and he mourns. The scriptures say that his pain was so deep, nobody could comfort him. Meanwhile, back to Joseph, right? Moses writes, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, was one of Pharaoh's official, officials. He was the captain of the guard. So this guy Potiphar is in charge of all of, of Egypt's armies. He's the second most important guy in Egypt. And Potiphar buys Joseph on the open slave market, right, from the Ishmaelites. That's who they had sold him to, who had taken him there. 
So he's being traded. He's being treated like, you know, a human cattle. And then right here in the middle of this bleakest of bleak stories is the first time you see the beginning, the dawn of the importance of this week's But God story. Now let's recap just what we've seen so far. Joseph has been beaten, thrown in a hole to die by his brothers, sold into slavery to the Ishmaelites, then resold into slavery to the superpower of the day, Egypt. If you were to sum up how things are going for Joseph, what would you say? Well, he's crushing it. Things are all turning up fine. It's terrible, right? I mean, if you're in Joseph's place, and maybe... Listen, the truth is, all of us find ourselves figuratively sometimes in that place where your circumstances are just beyond what you could, you could imagine happening. And you're not even responsible for it. It was done to you. Evil people have done horrible things to him. His life is seemingly ruined. His dreams are dashed. His hopes are lost. Next verse in the scriptures. The Lord was with Joseph. What? Yeah. The Lord was with Joseph. Somehow in the depths of this disaster, okay, and make no mistake about it, this is a disaster. He's lost everything. And he's, he's sentenced to a life of slavery, yet somehow instead of, here's what I would have done, right? Where is God in all of this? God, I've been crying. You know, you know, do you think Joseph prayed? Pretty sure he prayed. He was a man of God, family, you know, Abraham's grandson great grandson i have to do the math on that but i'm sure he cried out to god where is god in this i don't deserve this she could have been shaking his fist at god anger worry he could have chosen another path depression i'm just going to crawl over in the corner my life is over instead and you're going to see this over and over somehow joseph seems to believe that god even now despite his circumstances Actually, I would argue not despite his circumstances, with his circumstances, God is with him. Through his circumstances, God is with him. And so instead of cowering in the corner or becoming despondent, Joseph believes God's with him, and he begins to serve Potiphar, well, kind of the way the scriptures say us to, that we should, even as unto the Lord. Even in his slavery, he begins to serve Potiphar as if Potiphar was, was, was put in that position by God. Here's what Moses says. He says, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. In fact, he serves God, he serves God so faithfully while serving as a slave for Potiphar. From time to time, Potiphar put him in charge of his household and all that he owed. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptians because of Joseph. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptians because of Joseph. Can you imagine? I mean, that's a whole other sermon that could come out of that. But I'll just say this. Friends, the way you handle adversity, the way you conduct yourself in the valleys of life, in the pits, in the prisons, in the cisterns, even when everything is going wrong, even when it's all going the wrong way, but you still go the right way, you still believe that God is with you and you act like it, not only will you wind up blessing yourself, you will be what God promised the family of Abraham would be. You will bless others. Now, here's where, you know, the story gets a little racy, a little, little uh, NC-17-ish. 
Moses gives us some details about Joseph's physical characteristics, but more importantly about Joseph's moral fortitude. Moses says, Joseph was well-built and handsome. He reminds me of a young John Eisman, actually. I'll wait for the laughter to subside. Actually, we had an elder, Joe Fleck, and whenever you ask Joe Fleck what his fa favorite Bible verse was, he would always say Genesis 39.6. Joe was well-built and handsome. After a while, his master's wife, Mrs. Robinson, I mean, uh, Mrs. Potiphar, took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Some of you know the story. Joseph refuses to do it. It would go against the laws of his God. It would betray his master who's been so good to him. Well, as the saying goes, hell hath no fury like a scorned woman. And so one day, while she repeatedly has been hitting on him and hitting on him and hitting on him, he runs away, runs out of the room, and she grabs his coat, not unlike his brothers did, right off his back. And like the brothers took it to the father, she takes the coat back to her husband. And she goes to her husband and she goes, your servant tried to rape me. This is all in your Bible. It's hard to believe, right? It's like an episode of the Housewives of Egypt or something. But of course, that's why you should read the Bible. Of course, Potiphar believes his evil wife, just like Jacob believed his evil sons. And once again, Joseph finds himself in the pit, in another pit of an Egyptian prison. There, because of the evil works of evil people. Joseph, innocent. And, I mean, let's just be honest, you've got to enter the story. If you're Joseph now, what are you thinking? Circumstances now are even worse. Instead of slavery, now he's likely facing prison or death for the prison for life or death. How do you respond? I mean, I know how I would respond. I know how I have responded. Right? I have said to God in those moments, and I, I'm just being honest, I don't understand why you're letting this happen to me. All I've done is serve you. Why are you letting this happen to me? I mean, I've been tempted to give up or give in. Just say, man, I, maybe you're not there. Maybe you're not who I thought you were. Next verse. Here it comes. And gosh, if, if, you, if we could just hear this too in our circumstances, in our pits. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. Second time, the Lord was with him. But God was in prison with him. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. And so it appears once again that Joseph is unlike, well, at least me. Instead of giving in or giving up or questioning God or walking away, instead of questioning God's character, Joseph just assumes that God is exactly who he said he is and that God is with him. That God is somehow in control of this situation, as bad as it is, and as innocent as he is. And he begins to act in the, in the prison the exact same way he did in the house of Potiphar. Nothing changes, right? In the midst of the worst circumstances, right, he assumes that God is with him. Here's, here's what Moses said. But while, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him his success in whatever he did. 
There's a, a, a fairly famous question in evangelical circles now that has been tied to this story. I heard it over and over as I studied it this week. Here's the question. How would your life change? How would your life change and the lives of others around you if in every and any situation that you found yourself in, if you believed that God was right there with you? If you were just completely confident, God is with me. I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. God is in control of this situation. God is with me. How would it change? How would you feel? How would you respond in those situations? The, the, the power in the story of Joseph is that he never feels like God's abandoned him. He just, what's behind his ability to do this is he just keeps believing that what's happening to him is okay because God's with him and God's in control of the situation despite his circumstance. Well, he's in prison and some time goes by. And two of Pharaoh's other servants get put in prison with Joseph, Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. And both of them, while they're in prison, they have dreams. And so the story goes that Joseph interprets their dreams for them. For the baker, Joseph interprets bad news. He, he apparently had ticked Pharaoh off enough that he had three days to live. And Joseph let him know. But for the cupbearer, Joseph had good news. He told him that within three days, Pharaoh was going to restore him to his old position. And both of these things came true. Now, when Joseph told the cupbearer of his interpretation, he said to him, I only ask one thing of you. When you get out of prison, when you go back to Pharaoh, can you please let him know about my situation? I haven't done anything to be in here. I, I've done no wrong. Would you, would you make the Pharaoh aware of this? Would you stand up and speak for me? And of course, of course the cupbearer assured him he would. And if you know the story of Joseph, the cupbearer didn't. He did nothing. And Joseph, for two more years, sat in the prison. And I think we read these stories, right? And if you're familiar with them, you're like, oh, look at how God is at work in his life. I'm not sure if for two more years in the prison, he sat there saying, look at God, how he's at work in my life. You have to get into the story. And what are you thinking if you're Joseph? Well, those couple of years goes by, and Moses writes that Pharaoh, too, he has a dream, and nobody can interpret it. Nobody can figure it out until the cupbearer catches wind of the story and goes to Pharaoh and goes, oh, you know what? I forgot about this dude back in jail. He's still in there. That guy interpreted my dream. I'm sure he could interpret yours, too. And so Pharaoh goes and has Joseph brought out of prison and dragged back before him. And, and Joseph winds up standing there before Pharaoh now. Not Potiphar this time, Pharaoh, the most powerful man on earth, who commands him to now interpret his dream. And I'm telling you guys, if you want to understand the mind and the heart of Joseph, despite all of his circumstances, if you want to understand how you could live if you really believe that God was always with you, even when evil people do evil things, and our circumstances are horrible, check out what he says to Pharaoh. I cannot do it. First, you just see his, his humility, right? He claims no personal authority, puts his life at risk. But then he goes further. He goes, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer that he desires. J.D. Greer points out that the original audience that read that would have had the same reaction as everyone in the room with Pharaoh that day. They would have stepped back and said, oh, boy. Because in Egypt, Pharaoh is God. 
There are no other gods. And for him to stand up and go, God will give Pharaoh, he's pushing Pharaoh down in, in the food chain. Joseph realizes that, that, that it's not Pharaoh that has control of his life. He's, he, he, Pharaoh's thinking that this guy is standing before him, that he has the power over his life and death. Joseph realizes he doesn't, that he's in God's hands, which begs another question. How much confidence would you live with in life if you really believed that God was with you? How confident would you approach every day when you got out of your bed? God is with me today. God is with me today. Might you lose the fear of the man in front of you if you knew that God was behind you? Who could you stand before? What could you stand up for? What truth could you stand behind if you knew God was with you? Well... Joseph, by God's provision, he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, here's what he tells Pharaoh. He goes, Pharaoh, there's seven years of, of plus coming. We're going to have seven years of great feast and harvest. But then there's seven years of famine coming. And so he says to Pharaoh, here's what you must do. You've got to appoint somebody to make sure that during these seven coming good years, you store up enough grain here in Egypt to get you through these seven coming bad years. And Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph and senses God's hand on him that he makes Joseph that man and puts him second in command only to Pharaoh over all of, of Egypt. Which, of course, winds up having, just as he had predicted, seven years of feast where they collect up a bunch of the grain and then seven years of horrible famine, which reaches all the way back to Jacob, his father Jacob, and the brothers. Somehow his father, Jacob, becomes aware that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Somehow Egypt has come through this. They don't know how, but the word just gets back. And so, so Jacob now says to his sons, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we might live and not die. And he, he sends 10 of his sons off to Egypt to buy the grain. And, and, and guess who you have to see when you want to buy grain in Egypt? Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. And it's been years now, years. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. See, he, he knows who they are, but, but he's dressed up differently, right? Like he's second in command of the empire. And so they're not really tracking that that's their brother. But after all of these years... He sees his brother, and it's just like a triggering event. Evil people have done evil things to him. Evil people have done evil things to him. There's a triggering event that goes on. It's still there, the pain and the betrayal and the loss. And so Moses writes that at that moment, he turned away from them, and he began to weep. The decades of betrayal, right, come pouring out. And the story goes on. To make a long story short, right, Joseph puts his brothers through various tests, finds out more about his father and that his father's still alive and well. And at one point, after putting him through all these things, he just looks at them and he can't take it anymore. Joseph could no longer control himself and before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I mean, this is, this is one of those moments in the scripture that is so poignant and so powerful and so emotional. It was for Joseph. But could you put your place, yourself in the place of the brothers? Could you imagine? 
the brothers, this is one of those holy smokes moments, right? Like, do you, do you sense that the brothers were like, we're so happy to see you? They weren't. They were terrified, right? They were scared to death. They knew what they had done to him, and they were human beings, so now they knew what Joseph was going to do to them. And Joseph can sense it too, so here's what he says to him. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me, which must have terrified him all the more. And when they had done so, because they had no choice, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Joseph goes, look, I know how you see this. You see this the way men see this, right? I, I know how you assume I must see it. Our past, our shared past, what you did to me. But I no longer see things the way you do. Joseph says to him, I know what you did to me, but I know that God was with me in it and he was con in control of it the whole time. But God, I know what you think happened, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Again, how would your life change? How would your attitude about your past change? All of those areas where you've been betrayed and hurt and passed over and cheated on, you name it. How would your attitude about your past change if you began to believe that everything in the past that you had gone through, the absolute pits, even if it had been perpetrated by evil people for evil purpose, if it had all been used by God for your good, wouldn't the way you view your life begin to change? Wouldn't, wouldn't the way you, you think about yourself and your past change? Well, a little more time goes by. The family's reunited. Jacob and Joseph are, re are reunited. And, and sometime later, Jacob, Joseph's father, dies. And, and the brothers begin to become terrified again because they're still assuming that, that Joseph is the way they are, that he's, well, now, now dad's dead. Now the only reason he'd been kind to us because he didn't want to upset dad. Now he's going to kill us. And so Moses says that the brothers came and throw themselves down before Joseph this time. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, and then here comes what I think are the most three powerful verses that sum up the entirety of the Christian story, and I believe can sum up the entirety of our stories, if we could repeat them like Joseph did. Joseph says three things. Verse 19, he goes, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? You see, Joseph, in their minds, has their lives in his hands. They thought that, but Joseph knew better. And in that moment, Joseph does what very few of us choose. He, Joseph chooses to not be God, to not assume the place of God. Joseph pushes away the pride of the original sin that all of us fall into, right? Most of you know the story of Adam and Eve. What's the first temptation? If you eat of the fruit of this tree, right? The serpent told him, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you can be like God. You can determine what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. But Joseph says, I refuse to do it. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I'll let God be God for my brothers. This is why Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He said, beloved, 
do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're not me. I'll take care of them. Joseph, because he understands who God is and what God has done and how God has never abandoned him, it allows him to not assume the place of God in his life or theirs. Now, think about that concept. Imagine the freedom in your life, in my life, if we understood that God is actually good and in charge of our lives. Imagine the freedom you and I could live with in terms of worry, right? Think how much of our worry is rooted in what our plans are for ourselves or those we love. And most of our worry comes out of, I have plans for me and my kids and my children and my retirement. And those are the way things sh should go. And so why do you worry? Well, I worry because God might not let them happen. Well, what if you just decided that God was in control and God's plans were better? Just literally, you just decided. I'm not in control of this. I don't need to be in control of this. God's ways are better, and I trust them. That's how Joseph lived. Do you sense the freedom and the joy and the happiness you would begin to live with? That's why Jesus, you, ever, you know the question Jesus asked most often when he was walking the earth? Why are you so afraid? Like, why are you so afraid? He was almost perplexed by it sometimes. He wasn't because he understood our frailty, but why are you so afraid? You have a father in heaven. He, he knows what you need. I mean, look at the flowers. He takes care of them, and, and, and you're much more important. Why are you worried? Stop putting yourself in the place of God. And Joseph understands that, right? Imagine the, the grudges you could let go of, the anger you could release, the forgiveness you could bestow if you didn't need to put yourself and assume the role of God. What Joseph is showing us is that every person who keeps a grudge, right, just use the reverse of what he's saying, everybody that keeps a grudge or is resentful or holds on to that kind of anger is at his heart assuming the place of God. And what God is saying is, please, for your good and the good of others, step aside. Only God has the right to judge. We're all sinners. You don't know what, what the others have been through. Only God does. You don't know why they did what they did. Only God does. You, you don't know their pains or their past. To wish, to wish this or other bad things on, on those people in your life, right, puts you in God's place. Tim Keller has a great line about this. He says, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try and become like God. And the fastest way to be like God is to refuse to be him. Joseph says about your past and about those who have harmed you, heck, life in general, don't try to be like God. Step aside and let God be God. Literally make room for God. And then he tells them, and here's the most famous but God line, I think, in the scriptures. He says, look, you intended harm to me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. I heard it explained this week. Joseph was able to take God's view on his past and of his present. It's like trying to, it, being able to do this, it's like trying to figure out where you are when you're on a hike, when you get lost in the valley. When you're in the valley, all you look around is you can't see anything. You just see the mountains and the trees. You don't know where you are. You have no perspective, right? But if you could get up from the valley onto the mountaintop, onto the place if you had the view from, uh, of what God has, once you get to the top of the mountain, what can you see? Oh, that's there. I see where my car's parked. I see the campground. Now I know what we got to do. We're just going to go this way or that way. I see things completely different now. 
Now, what's important to see is Joseph does not dismiss their evil. He doesn't make light of it. He doesn't blow it off and say, hey, don't worry about it, guys. No big deal. He says, no, look, I know what you did. I even know your motives. I know you meant it for harm. But then he tells them that he could see now that God, what you meant for evil, God is used for good. God overrode your desire to screw my life up. How much different would your life be if, if you believed that others' decisions and actions, how much different would your life be if you believed your decisions and actions? Ultimately, God is still at work in your life overriding your screw-ups. You might suffer consequences, but God is going to use all of those things in your life for your good. God is still redeeming. You can't, you can't screw your life up. You really can't even screw the life of others up. The story that's told about Corrie Ten Boom, some of you have heard of her. She was a, a Christian uh, woman in World War II. She was helping smuggle, um, smuggle concentration camp uh, Jews from the Holocaust. And she wound up in a concentration camp herself with her sister Betsy. Here's what she wrote regarding this concept of, of God being at work even when you can't see him, having the perspective, uh, the mountaintop perspective. She said, Barrack 8 was in the quarantine compound. Next to us, perhaps as a deliberate warning to newcomers, were located the punishment barracks. From there, all day long and often into the night, came the sounds of hell itself. They were not the sounds of anger or any other human emotion, but of cruelty altogether detached. Blows landing in regular rhythm, screams keeping pace. We would stand in our ten deep ranks with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them against our ears to make the sound stop. It grew harder and harder. Even within those four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Yet in the midst of the suffering, she writes, the women prisoners around Corey and Betsy, her sister Betsy, found comfort in the little Bible studies they held in the barracks. She says, they gathered around the Bible like waves clustered around a blazing fire. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. When they were moved to Barracks 28, Corey was horrified by the fact that their reeking straw bed platforms swarmed with fleas. How could they live in such a place? But it was her sister Betsy, who apparently she said was more godly than her, that discovered the answer. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing in the barracks. I stared at her, then around me at the dark, foul, aired room. They thanked God for the fact that they were together. They thanked God they had a Bible. They even thanked God for the horrible crowd of prisoners that more people would be able to hear God's word. And then Betsy thanked God for the fleas. The fleas! That was too much, Corey Temboon said. The fleas were too much. There's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. This is so good. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for the fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong, but it turned out she wasn't. The fleas were a nuisance, but they were a blessing after all. You see, the, the women were able to have Bible studies in the barracks with a great deal of freedom. They were never bothered or beaten or abused or raped by the supervisors coming in and harassing them. In fact, the supervisors never came in at all. And then they found out why. It was the fleas 
that kept them out of the barracks. Who are the fleas in your lives? Can you thank God for them? Can you see them differently? In, in many ways, this is, this is, reminds me of this, this Japanese art. Uh, I, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Kintsugi pottery, have you guys heard of this? They create this pottery, and then the final part, the last stage, is to take the pots that they've made. This is, a, is an ancient craft. And then they would break the pots and shatter them into hundreds of pieces. They would take them and then melt gold and put them back together. And, and when they were stored, the pot was stronger than it had been before, before it was broken, and of higher value. Every break is unique. The scars are part of the design. It's an incredible metaphor of what God is up to in our lives. Here's how Paul explained it. We know in all things... God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. And then I'll close with this last line. The story of Joseph's but God story, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. He looks at his brothers and he says, so don't be, don't be afraid. I'm going to provide for you and your children. And he assured them and spoke kindly for them. Joseph blessed those who hurt him. Joseph blessed his enemies. How do you do that? I think it's only possible if you embrace those first two points. Number one, Joseph understood that he wasn't God. Joseph understood with great humility that he was loved by God even though he didn't deserve to be loved by God. Yet, point two was that Joseph had great confidence that God was with him no matter what happened. There was nothing that anybody could do to him, right? They, well, how mad am I going to be at you? What you meant for evil, God has used for good. And he embraced the humility that God had shown him. And he embraced the confidence that God had given him. And it was that that allowed him to, to forgive. Friends, don't you realize that, that Jesus is, is, as Tim Keller is famous for saying, the true and better Joseph, who sat down at the right hand of the king, just, just like Joseph, and he forgives those who betrayed and sold him, and, and he uses his newfound power to save and bless them. See, Joseph just had, a, had kind of a blurry concept of that. You have actual historical proof. The cross of Jesus Christ is the physical place, right? Where something that was meant for evil has been used for good. Jesus, in all of his humility, laid down his authority, laid down his life for you. And that should give you amazing confidence then to know the love that he has for you and that there is nothing that is happening in your past or your present or your future that is beyond the control of God. But what somebody's meant for your, in your life for evil, God will use it for good. Believe that and live in it. Let's stand and close in song.